You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And Eisenhower, he's having heart attacks. He has, uh, he has Crohn's disease and has part of his small intestine removed. In the middle of his presence, he's this old guy. And we're in the Cold War and we have nuclear weapons. And so he executed this agreement with Nixon where... Uh, if if he said that he was unable, would give power to Nixon, and then when he said he's better, he would take the power back. And if Nixon said he was unable, then Nixon could take power. But then if Eisenhower said I'm okay now, he would take power back. That agreement um, be- between them was sort of the the, the kernel around which uh, the rest of the 25th Amendment coalesced. Brian T. Colt is a professor of law and the Harold Norris Faculty Scholar at Michigan State University College of Law. He is the author of Unable, the Law, Politics, and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, and he joins me today. Brian, thanks so much for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Well, thanks for having me. The 25th is is obviously in the news, uh, impeachment dominates currently, but that hasn't stopped people from continuing to speculate about the 25th. And a lot of it comes from the election of Donald Trump. He didn't win a popular vote. And those that didn't vote for him, a lot of people say, well, there's this section in the Constitution where you can get rid of the president. Is that really a good purpose, though? Well, I I see where they're coming from. Uh, They they want to use whatever they think might work. You look at the Constitution, there are a very limited number of things that can get a president out, but this isn't really the right tool for the job. I remember seeing uh, George W. Bush, elected president, wrote to friends, you know, this will be the last email I'll be sending because I don't send anything as president. And certainly uh, Donald Trump has a has a different attitude in terms of public statements. And some people look at it and say, well, that's a crazy thing for a president to say. Really, um, your book is called Unable. How do you see unable? Does it, does it have to be because of a medical condition? Well, it doesn't have to be a medical condition. Um, the, the people who think that, uh, when Trump tweets something crazy that he's, you know, if he's lost his marbles, that it could apply to that. It could. It, it's not totally limited to just, um, someone who's in a coma, has a stroke or something like that. But the the title of the book is trying to convey a double meaning, and the the subtitle, the the law, politics, and limits of the twenty fifth section four of the twenty fifth amendment, is to convey that it's really limited in what it can be used for. We're unable um, to use it for a situation like this. What section four means when it says unable isn't clear from, from the document itself. They don't try to define it. What they do is they give us a process and and decision makers and they assign the decision to those people and by looking at that structure we can figure out 
what it works for, what it doesn't work for. And also looking at the legislative history, we can see what they were trying to, definitely trying to protect the president. Yeah, and it's something that was not idly constructed. I mean, there are some big names, Birch Bayh and Robert Kennedy involved in its construction. Yes, and uh, and President Eisenhower and President Johnson were putting their weight behind it, too. And I think it's important to, to recognize um, just politically that it wouldn't have been possible to get something through if it gave too much power to people to get rid of a president who was anything other than completely unable. So the, the structure really breaks it down into two parts. There are easy cases and hard cases. And the easy cases are where the president, for whatever reason, isn't going to be able to respond. He's in a coma. He's um, completely lost the ability to communicate. He's missing, something like that. And when that happens, it's designed to swiftly and certainly transfer power to the vice president. But in the other sorts of situations where the president can contest the action and whatever else you can say about Donald Trump, I don't think there's any doubt that if they invoked Section 4, he would, maybe by Twitter, maybe on TV, but he would resist. He would contest the action. Section 4 sets up a process that protects the president in those situations and makes it really difficult for the president to lose, put several thumbs on his side of the scale. And, and I think the people who are calling for Section 4 to be used against President Trump are overlooking that part of the design. It has to involve um, the vice president. Yeah, just, just first of all, for starters, the people who declare the president unable to, to start the whole process out are not uh, people who already wanted him out. They are the vice president and the cabinet. You need a vice president and a majority of the cabinet to invoke it. And then if the president contests it and, and the vice president and cabinet stick to their guns, then it goes to Congress. You need two thirds in the House, two thirds in the Senate, uh, which is more in the House on the House side, more than you need for impeachment and removal. So it was it was designed to be really hard to use. You're not going to get him out of office unless his people and uh, significant numbers of Republicans in the House and Senate think that he's got to go. Other parts of the 25th have been used. We've had a vice president appointed by the process of the 25th. We've had, we'd had two of them. Uh, we've had presidents voluntarily give power while, to the vice president while they're under surgery. Uh, George H.W. Bush and Dick Cheney you know, among the recipients of that. But, um, section four has never been used except by Hollywood screenwriters, it seems. And, uh, it seems like with a few exceptions, they're usually getting it wrong. They are. Uh, I have a whole chapter in my book about that. And, and, and I wonder why, you know, some of them you can say, oh, well, they simplified it to be, uh, mm -hmm. make the, the scene flow better. But there are a lot of times where they just, they get things wrong. And the, the real version of section four that they're ignoring or, or getting wrong would have been even more dramatic. Um, and I, I don't know if, they don't know or they don't care. But the bottom line is, since it's never been used in real life, um, people's understanding of it is is inordinately uh, shaped by what they see on TV. And so consequently, millions of people have a very skewed view of what Section 4 is about and how it's supposed to work. You have like Homeland where the vice president menacing the president. If you don't do what I, I want, I'm going to invoke this. Yeah. And, and the thing... <laughs> The Homeland, there was uh, this time in 2018 where three shows 
uh, almost one after another, all used Section 4 storyline. And, and Homeland was, they were so close. They, they had the, the president give this great speech about how they were misusing Section 4 and how this isn't what it's supposed to be used for. And um, they had a chance to have the, the story make it clear that she was right, but but they didn't. The only reason the president ended up winning that one was it turned out her opponents were um, the, the Russians had a conspiracy and that's what was going on. And so it was just a matter of the facts that made her win and not not her her legal argument, which uh, in this case, because of the structure of Section four would have and, and should have won. Of all movies, it seems like Dave gets it right. Yeah, the, the movies in general, Air Force One and and Dave, the movies in general have done a better job with it. With with Dave, we see the the chief of staff trying to avoid Section Four, uh, pretending getting an imposter to stand in for the president rather than let power go to the vice president. But uh, it w- which shows the limits of Section Four. There are still people who would want to protect the president, uh, protect their own influence under. Uh, his his authority, but then at the very end they uh, they get it right and they explain what happens and they even say under the terms of the Twenty Fifth Amendment uh, the Vice President becomes acting president and then pursuant to Section One becomes the president and uh, so they got it right and and Air Force One same thing Air Force One is a great example of what I was saying about how if they take the Section Four how it's supposed to work how it actually work how it how mm-hmm. it's supposed to play out if they take that seriously. That makes for some fine drama, I think. And and in Air Force One, they did a great job with that. Your book, Unable, The Law, Politics, and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, has a lot of detail on all of these various uh, plots. So anyone, listen, if you're interested in really going like, you know, show by show, movie by movie, you know, you, this is a book that you'll you'll want to get. I do just want to bring up one more because my listeners specifically asked me to ask you. It was about West Wing. And how specifically how um, the West Wing handled it seems like they sort of ignored. Yeah, very disappointing because I know a lot of people looked up to the West Wing as as getting things right and and getting the details right and and having, you know, uh, Josh would come out with some soliloquy uh, explaining uh, some technical detail or some history. Um, but they got it wrong twice. Um, I only mentioned one of them in the book, uh, which is in season two when President Bartlett gets shot. They're trying to sort of um, echo the Reagan assassination. So he gets shot. They rush him to the hospital. And then there's this little crisis because they say he never signed the letter. Uh, and they say if the president's going under general anesthesia, as President Bartlett was, he, he was on, in, in surgery, uh, they said he's got to sign a letter. He's got to transfer power to the vice president. And and this is referring to Section 3, where, as you mentioned, um, George H.W. Bush, Dick Cheney were acting president while President Reagan and George W. Bush, respectively, were getting colon uh, surgery or colonoscopy. That's Section 3. And it's true. If the president is going to transfer power voluntarily, take it back without there being any other process, he's got to use Section 3. But there's also Section 4. And if the president is in surgery, and he's under general anesthesia for hours, and he hasn't used Section 3, that's precisely what Section 4 was for. But the, but the whole episode, uh, Leo McGarry, uh, chief of staff, is um, acting like there's, there is no Section 4. 
And and then a few seasons later, uh, the president's um, daughter is is kidnapped, and he feels like he's not able to do his job. The mental strain is uh, is is too much for him, so he transfers power. And the the, the episode is called Twenty Five. Uh, the problem is there wasn't a vice president, and so he says he's invoking the Twenty Fifth Amendment to transfer power to the Speaker of the House, and you can't do that. 25th Amendment requires that there be a vice president. If there's no vice president, the president could declare himself unable. He could say, by analogy to the 25th Amendment, mm-hmm. I'm doing this, and, and you know it would probably work out, but it wouldn't be Section 3. You, you can't do it without a vice president. It's, it's written very clearly into Section 3. What happens at that point if that were if that series of events that go? Like, do we go to SCOTUS and have them decide? Or does the president have to actually resign? Well, I think under the political question doctrine, the Supreme Court probably wouldn't get involved in an uncontested case. So if the president really felt like President Bartlett did there, he really felt like he was unable and he wanted to transfer power to the Speaker of the House. You don't need the 25th Amendment for that. Section 2, I'm sorry, Article 2 of the Constitution says whenever the president is unable and the vice president is, you know, missing or unable, then it goes to the line of succession. And currently the line of succession law puts that to the Speaker of the House. And so the the problem is Article 2 didn't provide any process, didn't provide any criteria, didn't designate any decision makers. So what the 25th Amendment did was to fill in those details. And I think having filled in those details, a president would be able to use that by analogy and say, okay, I'm declaring myself unable. Um, No one's contesting this. It goes to the Speaker of the House. I think the more interesting and difficult question would be, what if we have a Section 4 situation? The president's unconscious or he is clearly unable, but is unwilling to use Section 3. And the Speaker of the House says, well, I'm, I'm acting president now because uh, we, don't, we don't have a president. Section 4 makes that really hard to do if the president contests it. What happens if the Speaker of the House comes in and he just says, well, uh, Section 4 doesn't apply. I'm using Article 2. I'm just going to declare myself acting president. That, that would be pretty serious. I think, I think it's fair to say that we have to have at least as much process in that situation as we would otherwise. So if the Speaker of the House, if there is no vice president, the Speaker of the House is next in line and a majority of the cabinet agree. Um, and if the president disagrees, maybe send it to Congress and, and have them vote. Maybe, maybe that would work. The framers of um, Section 4 discussed whether they should provide for that situation where there is no vice president. And they decided that uh, Section 4 was already long enough as it was. It's something like, I think it's 274 words. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so so they, they decided, no, that, that's, that's not an issue. Section 2 of the 25th Amendment lets us fill vice presidential vacancies. So, you know, yeah, there's a risk here, but it's not worth clogging up the Constitution over. I, I'm not so sure I agree with that. I think they could have added 10, 10 or 15 more words and done the job. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not going to uh, question the political geniuses who actually got it through Congress. It's pretty rare to get an amendment through uh, proactively as they did. Yeah, it was a pretty fast approval through the Congress and the legislatures. I guess they were looking for um, no no controversy, which I, I think they got in, that, in the case of that one. 
Yeah, the the main controversy was everyone agreed that something needed to be done, and the question was just what should it be. And the great political genius of Birch Bayh, if if, um, anyone wants to read his uh, his his book on that, it was uh, it, it was quite good, detailing the legislative maneuvering that went into getting it passed. Um, What he did was he built a consensus ahead of time, and he got the American Bar Association, and he got the Attorney General, and he got everyone together to sort of agree on an approach. So that once it got into Congress, you know, everyone's got their own ideas, but but he can say, well, all, all of these people have worked it out, and we agreed this is the best way to to do it, and so it went through. And uh, his his book on that is called One Heartbeat Away, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good read. So we discussed uh, what might happen if there's no vice president, but since the vice president and uh, majority of the cabinet is the uh, the body that at least right now there is a there is a provision in uh, in the section that allows Congress to change that. And you could discuss that as well. But since that's the the reigning body now let's talk about the cabinet um the cabinet should be a friendly bunch uh, it's people that the president uh, appointed um who constitutes the cabinet so um the language that they use in section four it doesn't name the cabinet as the cabinet it refers to the principal officers of the executive departments and uh that language is supposed to echo article two but People look at that and they say, well, what does that mean? And what it means is very clear from the legislative history. And also, if you just look at the statutes in question, the executive departments to which they refer are designated in a statute. And currently that statute is 5 U.S.C. Section 101. And it names the 15 cabinet level uh, positions, the 15 executive departments. So state, treasury, defense, et cetera. Um, it does not include, this is the important part, it does not include any of the so-called cabinet-level positions. So presidents can add people or subtract people like the head of the EPA or the head of the Small Business Administration um, or the chief of staff, sometimes people say, is uh, cabinet-level or the UN ambassador or the trade representative. None of those people, um, even if they're quote-unquote cabinet-level, None of those people get to participate. It's just those 15 core um, positions. And they're also the 15 that are in the line of succession. Got it. Okay. that That's probably something that most people aren't aware of. And then there's the line that uh, says that or other uh, body as Congress might designate. I'm going to paraphrasing a bit there. Never, never eliminating the vice president, but Congress has an ability to actually set another possible body like for instance uh, i'm making some assumptions here which you could correct say a uh, uh, an opposition congress now or enough senators that are say concerned or something like that they could say by a majority vote vote of both houses i guess or just simply passing a bill the normal way uh now we designate uh, this group of doctors at uh walter reed as the new body you still have to have the vice president if i'm not making a mistake but then the vice president plus that body would then make the decision Yes, um, and there have been bills introduced over the years. There's one uh, now, Representative Jamie Raskin introduced to get some add some doctors into the mix. Um, there's 
couple of responses to that, though. One is just historically, the reason that that provision is in there was it was a compromise. There were some people who didn't want to designate the decision makers uh, to, to sort of hardwire that into the amendment. And uh, they wanted to just say Congress can, instead of putting all these details in Section 4 for this whole process, Congress can pass a law later that does this. And um, that didn't fly because people didn't think, the, I think correctly, that the states would like to write a blank check like that to Congress. Um, but just to placate that constituency in, uh, within Congress, they said, well, if it turns out later that someone other than the cabinet would be good, we can take care of it then. The important thing to remember, though, is as legislation, that would be subject to veto by the president. So any legislation that's passed to make it easier to get the president out, presumably uh, the president feels like there's a target on his back. He's going to veto that. And you need two thirds in both houses to override the veto. So unless you unless you've got that kind of support, which generally you won't have, I can imagine a, a scenario in which that happens, but I, I don't, certainly don't think we're there now. I, I don't see that uh, passing something like that on the fly. No, that's a good point. It would have to almost happen in one president, one one noble, forward-thinking president's administration, and then be used in an, in another down the line. A lot of the section involves transmitting of letters. Like, for instance, the the vice president can't just start barking orders. They have to transmit to the Speaker of the House and the Senate president um, that uh, that this condition of inability exists. Well, the the, the Senate president, the Senate president pro tem, uh, actually the the president of the Senate is the vice president. And in in an earlier draft of the legislation, it said transmit to the president of the Senate. Till someone pointed out that the vice president would be transmitting a letter to himself. <laughs> um, so so they fixed that part. But yeah, I think it's it's to make it official, to make it above board. But it's important to note that power transfers when it's transmitted, not when it's received or acknowledged or anything like that. So once they send the email or the fax uh, or send the courier down the street, the vice president can uh, start barking orders. And that immediacy, that uh, instantaneous effect was part of what they wanted to do here. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, I have to ask then, and, and then because then, then there's also a provision where the president can then transmit a letter saying that uh, to the same people saying that uh, no such case of inability exists. And uh, can is a tweet sufficient for that? Um, I, I suppose if he tags um, the president pro tem and the speaker mm-hmm. in his tweet, that mm-hmm. that might suffice. I'm not sure. The stakes are a little lower there because the president does not take power back immediately uh, upon declaring that. It starts a four-day waiting period where um, the vice president and cabinet can contest his 
uh, his, his resistance and the vice president stays in charge in the meantime. But um, yeah, I, I suspect that whoever would be helping him out with the legal formalities here uh, would probably say, yeah, you, you should probably sign a piece of paper and, and fax that over. But uh, I suppose a tweet might work. It's a modern, yeah, modern, modern day communication and has the immediacy of revealing the president's thoughts, uh, as we know. Uh, that four day we, uh, waiting period intrigues me, as I know it would intrigue a lot of, uh, listeners. Let's talk about, it. I mean, just in essence, it really does seem to me that the flaw in this system is that a VP could at least exercise power for four days, even for possibly malicious reasons. Not that they would. Yeah, um, that was their main worry when they were writing this portion. My main worry, and this was a uh, subject of a chapter in my earlier book, Constitutional Cliffhangers, uh, A Legal Guide for Presidents and Their Enemies, is that a lot of people, when they read Section 4, misread this four-day waiting period, and they think the president can take power back immediately. So I, I think the real risk is the way they drafted it a, a little bit vaguely. I, I don't think that it's hard to come up with the right reading here. Um, certainly, if you look at the legislative history, it's clear that the vice president's in charge. But if the president says he's in charge right away and uh, starts tweeting about it, millions of people agree with him. Yeah, that could get that could get dicey. Yeah, there's going to be pressure because the language says unless I see where you're going with the language, and you're and you're certainly more expert than me in this respect. The but the language, you know, it says unless uh, within four days the 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 vice president, you know, contest this. The vice president, majority of the members of the executive departments contest it, which would there's no other way to read that than you have to give a person four days if there's an unless. In there. I agree. Uh, others don't, uh, but I, I think it's it's uh, extremely clear. Uh, as far as the vice president, uh, sort of a some sort of coup. Yes, they would have. Uh, I, I should I should step back and mention. People talk about, oh, this would be a coup, or they talk about impeachment, it would be a coup. And other people say, well, no, it wouldn't be because this is a constitutional process. And I, I get what they're saying, but it, it, it is fair to say that someone abusing a constitutional procedure could certainly be accused of an illicit seizure of power. Even if they're using constitutional processes, if they're not really, and there's some movies and books about this, but they don't really believe that there's anything wrong with the president, they just want to take power and that's what they're doing, then I, I think it is fair to, uh, to, to label it that way. So the framers of Section 4 were worried about that. They said, who should be in charge during that four-day waiting period? Some people said, well, the president's the president, and, and he got elected, and if he says he's fine then we should give him the benefit of the doubt and let him take power back immediately. And other people said, well, but if the vice president and cabinet have taken this extraordinary step, there's some reason to question that. And let's let's have a little time and let's cool things off a little bit. And ultimately, what they decided was that it was more likely and more dangerous a prospect that we would have a president who was out of it, uh, but couldn't realize that himself and, and could do a lot of damage that way, that that was uh, more likely and a greater risk than a usurping vice president and cabinet. And certainly they didn't think that that was uh, that the latter was impossible, that that that, that could happen, they said. But 
looking at history, looking at the reluctance vice presidents have had to to um, assert themselves in these situations before Section Four, uh, and 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 looking at it after as well. I think they were probably right. There, there have been a lot more instances where the vice president and cabinet should have invoked Section 4 than there have been instances where um, there was a president who clinging to power and would do a lot of damage. Uh, it, 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 was, um, it, it, was, it was that combination. And we haven't had any that have come to light, at least, uh, any instances in the 50 plus years since Section 5 came out of vice presidents um, sort of chomping at the bit to invoke Section 4. It's just it's just too risky politically, even if you wanted to do something like that. The the odds of pulling it off are. I know there was a concern, I believe, it was South Carolina, either Senate or legislature before it was they did end up passing the ratifying the amendment, but they had some little concern, maybe in a law journal, in South Carolina about, uh, you know, this, this might change how we pick VPs. And this is not really what people picking tickets are thinking about. I don't think uh, my view of the po- political situation, there's never been a substantial change in that aspect. I don't see presidents, you know, uh, checking their six, uh, you know, um, uh, to see if, uh, uh, the person they're picking is going, you know, it seems like all the choices for both, uh, candidates and, and successful and unsuccessful vice presidential candidates have been made for all the typical reasons, balancing out the party. You know, Pence was a different type of Republican than Trump was, the governor, and that was the reason to pick him. I don't see people picking like, you know, Clinton purposely picks a, uh, another Southern, a uh, Democrat who's also very forceful, politically strong at who could actually succeed him. Uh, presidents so far and presidential candidates seem to be picking for the right reasons. I do wonder if Section 4 is ever actually executed at any time, if that would change that dynamic. And presidents might start saying, well, I'm going to pick this insignificant person that nobody likes. But um, I, I, I think so far it hasn't had... Uh... Since we're talking about actual uh, cases here, uh, the, the one greatest instance of when Section 4 should have been invoked was when Reagan was shot. And he, he was in surgery. He was unconscious uh, for several hours. He was totally out of it for a, a good while after that. And they should have invoked Section 4. They didn't. Uh, they Most of the people involved admitted later that they probably should have. One of the reasons that they didn't, uh, according to the, the books on this that I've read, sort of the, the inside uh, accounts of it, uh, is that George Bush was not uh, one of them. Uh, he, was a, a, he was picked to balance the ticket. He was from the moderate wing of the party. Um, people didn't quite trust him. And so it was very difficult for him to think about sort of sticking his neck out, sort of asserting himself and say, well, I'm, I'm taking over. That would have looked disloyal. Um, and if everyone else had come up to him or, in the, and they'd, or they'd asked the doctors and the doctor said, yes, by all means, transfer power. He can't do anything. Um, if, if there had been a little more appreciation of, of uh, what was going on at the time um, and what was at stake, I, I think, they probably could have gotten over that, but that vice presidential reluctance because of that political balancing act uh, is why they didn't invoke Section 4. And uh, they didn't want to look weak 
that was the other thing is Reagan was Reagan was the oldest uh, president ever elected. And and so the notion that he wasn't this superhuman uh, paragon of vigor, uh, anything that would convey weakness, they wanted to avoid that. They didn't want to look weak in front of the Russians. The Russians were moving troops around that day and weren't sure what was going on there. So there's a lot, a lot that goes into it, even in a clear case like that, where they, they definitely should have invoked it. Sometimes the politics can lead you to a different result. Yeah, no, I tend to agree with that. We have, we haven't had the arch villain vice president, um, that is so often in the Hollywood movies, but certainly it is very plausible that a vice president very often will come from a different side of the party. I mean, Gore and Clinton were, was it? was not the norm you're usually going to have your uh mccain's and your palins you're usually going to have your um they're going to pick a governor and a congress you're usually going to pick people that aren't really so close and and talking to each other all the time or having the same um group of friends and and yeah i think you see that on the reagan want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, issue there, certainly. The West Wing sort of explores that because after... Even, even their, um, illegal use, if you will, or improper use of the 25th, uh, in the episode that Bartlett is weakened after that, going through that season. They, you know, once it did, they're, they're depicting perhaps accurately that after a president uses this, the rest of their presidency, even when they return and write that letter, um, yeah, there, there's this image is over their heads. Oh, well, you couldn't do it when the time, when, when the time was needed, you weren't, you were unable. Um, Reagan, I think also, uh, there's some talk that, uh, Reagan, uh, when the Reagan staff was going out and Howard Baker was coming in as chief of staff, you know, the Reagan people had warned the Baker people, maybe not the best source because they were a little bitter that, uh, hey, you might have to use the 25th here. This guy's, you know, a little out of it and stuff. And of course, Howard Baker set up some tests and, and, and observed him and found that, hey, that it was not, not the case at all. Uh, at least to, some versions that I saw. Yeah, I have, I have a little uh, brief discussion of that in, in chapter um, six of the book. Um, Reagan, it, it was a, it was a low moment in his second term. Uh, Rand Contra was dragging him down and he was always sort of hands off, but he was just sort of hanging out in the residence all day, watching movies and watching TV. And he wasn't reading anything they prepared for him. They were, signing his name to stuff without him looking at it like bad bad stuff here and so they warned him about that but then he gets the new chief of staff in all these new people coming in and he's right back in it and that was the end of that yeah 
I think uh, I think he was he was able even in the last days, maybe not as quick, but uh, certainly could beat the tail off anybody rhetorically or in TV speeches and the like. Of course, uh, the great historical example of where. Uh, and there's many, but the, the one that a lot of people point to, to where we maybe could have used the 25th is Woodrow Wilson. He's has a stroke, he suffers a second stroke in the White House, you know, and there, I mean, boy, did they not follow anything close to the 25th, it seems. I mean, Vice President Thomas Marshall comes to the door, he's sent away by the president's wife. Um, there's a some discussion among the secretary of state and the president's doctor and the president's secretary about possibly uh doing something with marshall but then the secretary and doctor adamantly opposed and even opposed to even having a cabinet meeting without woodrow wilson which would defeat the whole purpose of having the cabinet decide back then so what's your view of the, those events of 1919 and 1920 it was really interesting because um, going back and, and looking at uh, what was known publicly, um, my my education on this had always been, oh, the whole thing was kept from the public. But uh, at the beginning, it, Wilson's doctor was issuing press releases saying Wilson needs absolute rest, that he is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. I mean, they said it in, in so many words. Uh, so if we had had a section four back then, Presumably, they they would have used it um, at least initially. Um, the the reason they didn't uh, use it at the time, and and this is one of the main things that inspired Section Four. One of the things about the original Constitution that they felt they had to change was it wasn't clear if the president is unable and the vice president takes power as acting president. It wasn't clear from the Constitution that the president would take power back if and when he recovered. And uh, this is why they didn't transfer power when Garfield was shot and lingered for for three months. And so if you don't know for sure that the president takes power back when he recovers, that makes uh, the vice president stepping up even more of uh, look even more like a power grab. And uh, so that was, part of the reason for Marshall's reluctance. Wilson also didn't particularly like Marshall. Uh, Mrs. Wilson definitely didn't like Marshall. They thought he was kind of a a bumpkin and not not serious enough. Um, And um, there were people in Congress, there were people in the cabinet who wanted Marshall to step up, but he just wasn't willing to do it. And then Wilson's doctor said, the only thing that's driving him to try and recover is to to get his power back. And so they made sort of a, a personal decision to protect his power, to make him recover better than maybe he would have otherwise, um, putting uh, self in, in front of country in that case, because it definitely was detrimental to, uh, to the country. Eventually, the Secretary of State said, well, I mean, we should be able to meet as a, as a cabinet. Uh, let's, let's do that. Wilson finds out about that and, and uh, fires uh, the Secretary of State. He finds out about this when he's recovered enough that he can do things uh, like that. The funny thing to me is the account of this, uh, r- written uh, not too long after uh, by the President's personal secretary, Joseph um, Tumulty, who says, um, Wilson said, when Lansing sought, Lansing's the Secretary of State, when Lansing sought to oust me, I was upon my back. 
I'm on my feet now and I will not have disloyalty about me. So he fires Lansing. But at the moment Wilson said that, uh, Tumulty said that uh, the physically weak Wilson was sitting in an invalid chair when he said this. So he was not on his feet, in fact. This initial period where he was clearly unable, uh, I think Section 4 would have would have been invoked and he probably wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. But he also probably would have claimed that he was better fairly soon. So I'm not sure exactly how Section 4 sort of situation would have played out if if Constitution had been amended before all this. I do know, just looking at the legislative history of uh, Section 4, this was the number one thing that they wanted to address. Uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson or a James Garfield situation. That was supposed to be the easy case, and that was what they wanted Section 4 to avoid, and not a more marginal case of like a Calvin Coolidge who's depressed because his son died, and so he doesn't come out of his room. He you know, sleeps 14 hours a day. That's a more marginal case, or or even a Franklin Roosevelt who's got severe health issues. Um, it, maybe he's not at his best, that's not what they were trying to do. And, and it was, it's very clear from the debates in the situations uh, they, they want to err on the side of letting the president keep his power. Yeah, no, interesting questions. Again, I think it's also a, a who was vice president there was critical. If it was Brian or Champ Clark, they would have uh, stomped over some of the obstacles that president's doctor put up some more forceful politician in in that vice president's office but with marshall i don't you know he says i, I never wanted the place unless unless it was going to be handed to him uh, he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna force the issue uh, and all of that and maybe history was better i i tend to you know I, I i used to think somewhat that way we really didn't need a marshall at that time um an incapacitated wilson might have been better but you know i just had done a podcast talking about all of the civil rights violations and the Palmer raids and and bad things that happened while Wilson was incapacitated and maybe could have tamped down and maybe a more active president would have been better. It's just one of those questions people can debate about. Uh, speaking of debates, uh, you'd, you'd said in uh, this issue, the fact that it hasn't all been resolved, that it hasn't actually been used as Section 4, that it's, it's probably a good thing because there's... Uh, so much time to debate it. Do you find that there's that, that given the time since the amendment to now, uh, Hollywood aside, that there's enough constitutional law debate where there's some precedents established here? You know, I, I think what the last three years have, um, made clear something, something that I think we all suspected before, but, uh, it is that politics trumps law, uh, for, for almost everyone. Um, and this is, this is why I try and write these things before, uh, the issues are at the forefront. I want to say, here's what the law is. Here's what's supposed to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. let's think these things through before we know which side we want to win, because whatever it means, it means the same thing, whether the president's a Democrat or a Republican, but that's not how people take it. Any argument you make that means that their side wins, that's what they'll put forward. And any side that uh, taken to its logical conclusion says their side loses, they will dismiss, they will denigrate, they will um, say it's just uh, you're, you're only saying that because you support Trump. If I if I point out that there's a, a limit on twenty on the Twenty Fifth Amendment that oh don't do this it wouldn't work, 
um, then all of a sudden I'm backing the uh, the, the, the president's uh, latest crazy tweet, which this has nothing to do with. So I, I, I would have hoped that a time when it's being discussed would be a great opportunity. All this discussion is a chance to sort of educate people. Um, and it, it hasn't really played out that way. I think with the 25th Amendment, Section 4, mainly because it hasn't really gotten past the point of discussion. Uh, it, it is idle speculation at this point. If it were actually invoked, then I think people would would learn a lot about it. And uh, assuming that it all went the way it was supposed to, uh, people would understand. But when it's not being used, and and it's not supposed to, as I said, there are these limits that are are, are why it's not being used. Uh, because it's not being used, we don't have that. We just have conspiracy theories. And well, my my favorite uh, one, I I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, talking to people about this one is people say, well, the thing is um, you can't use the 25th Amendment if you don't have a cabinet. And that's why Trump has all of the people in his cabinet are acting secretaries. And it's all part of this plan. And I and I try and explain to people, it is unclear whether an acting secretary can vote or not. Uh, but first of all, there's only one out of the 15 that's acting, uh, Wolf at uh, Homeland Security. The other 14 are all Senate confirmed. So from the start, the, the, this notion that the whole cabinet or most of the cabinet is acting is, is just wrong. But even if the acting secretaries can't vote, then then they're not in the denominator, right? You have, you have four acting secretaries. Uh, right now you have one, but let's say you have four. Okay, so you just need six out of the 11 who are left to vote yes, and you're fine. And you wouldn't be doing things with a slim majority anyway. Um, you're going to need a unanimous, as a practical matter, a unanimous or a near unanimous cabinet. If if the president is in a coma, then they're going to be unanimous. Um, and if the president's not in a coma, they better be unanimous or they're not going to win when the vote goes to Congress because the president's going to contest it. So it's it's not like we even need to worry about a case where the vote goes one way if the actings count or the other way if the actings don't. Now, try taking everything I just said and putting it into 280 characters. Um, it, it doesn't usually go too well for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally understood. Totally understood. Hey, that's why we have podcasts. Uh, besides anything that we discussed today, is there anything we missed, anything we should have uh, hit on? I guess I want to give more credit to President Eisenhower. Mm -hmm. um, if, if, I, if I had to, if people credit Birch by for the... Uh, section four, as they should. But I think that President Eisenhower deserves a lot of credit as well. Um, this situation of an inadequate constitution had prevailed for, for 170 years at that point. And Eisenhower, he's having heart attacks. He has, uh, he has Crohn's disease and has part of his small intestine removed. In the middle of his presence, he's this old guy and we're in the Cold War and we have nuclear weapons ready, ready to go. And, and he realizes this could be a disaster. If we don't have a steady hand at the helm, we could be in real trouble. And so he executed this agreement with Nixon where uh, if, if he said that he was unable, it would give power to Nixon. And then when he said he's better, he would take the power back. And if Nixon said he was unable, then Nixon could take power. But then if Eisenhower said, I'm okay now, he would take power back. That agreement um, be between them was sort of the, the, the kernel around which 
uh, the rest of the 25th Amendment coalesced. And Eisenhower had his attorney generals come up with some ideas and suggest some things, and that's what really got the ball rolling in Congress. So when Birch Bayh came in through this accident of history, uh, Senator Kefauver dies, and Birch Bayh becomes the chair of this subcommittee on constitutional amendments, this first-term senator. Um, he had something to pick up and run with, and he did a great job picking it up and running with it, but it was Eisenhower who put it there for him to pick up. And so I, I think he, he deserves a lot of credit. I've been speaking with Brian C. Colt, professor of law, Michigan State University College of Law, and the author of Unable, The Law, Politics, and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. There's so much more in the book than what we're able to, to talk about uh, in one podcast, so highly recommend that you go to Amazon or wherever you get books and buy Unable. Brian, thanks so much for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Well, thanks. It was a lot of fun. I want to thank you for listening. And uh, there's much more to be had on the extra podcast for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.